The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're going to begin this evening. Um, most of you know that we usually have somebody in the class talk for about five minutes about Donna. That way over the months of our Buddhist studies class, we hear different voices about this, both this important practice in our lives, giving and receiving freely, but also about how you relate developing a healthy relationship with the community here and the center here. Why don't you use the mic, though? So, I don't know if people know, this is Laura Adrian. Hello. So, I... Well, thanks for this opportunity. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of cool for me to share some of my insights with Donna and and how it's been showing up in my life and in my practice. And well, the first part of Donna is is to to really freely receive the the teachings and all that's offered at the center and and this can be challenging for some people it's actually not challenging for me <laughs> I'm like yeah this is great thank you um, but this can be challenging for some people in the conditioning of the culture so so that's the first part and um, and you know we can maybe think of times in our life even when we were offered a gift and it and it didn't feel like it was freely given like there were kind of strings attached or you felt like you owed them something but really the practice here is is to feel it to receive that gift and and sometimes um when people freely give to me i even say in my head i receive this like I really receive this, and um, so the second part of Donna is is freely giving, and this has been much more challenging for me. And I remember some point on a retreat where I I realized like I I was kind of in a sticky situation with my relationship to giving and. It didn't feel good how I was giving back, and and I needed to explore that because it was causing me suffering. So I, I talked to Mark about it, and, and one of the things he said that I really liked was to experiment with how giving in different ways feel, how it feels to give in different ways. So that was one of the first things I did. And the other thing he said to me was you don't have to do anything reckless. So keep it practical and like give within your means if that's what feels right for you. And and one of the things that I also did, which I think was really good, um, just as we really feel as we receive something, really feel it when you give something out of generosity and I think this is such a powerful practice so when you give in whatever way or shape it takes feel it and then and then the last part is 
is notice and observe what happens and and notice how notice the effects generosity can have um, in different areas of your life and and how it can ripple out and and for me I've really only been intentionally practicing Donna for about eight months and and I can definitely think of some changes um, it's made in my life like I, I feel more connected to myself I feel less anxious I feel more confident I feel like I'm relating to the world in a more free and easy way and and so we can see these effects when we do this and we can also um, kind of let our Donna practice be be organic and be inspired so even though um, there's great karmic benefit to the center to give in money. Um, we can also give Donna with words and in our relationships, in sharing food, um, leaving the space better than we found it, and, and volunteering. Ultimately, the practice of Donna is a practice of letting go and, and noticing how that feels. So thanks for listening. Mm, thanks, Laura. And uh, hopefully Laura's willingness to speak up will encourage somebody to volunteer in the fall course. It's really nice to hear different people. And uh, it's such a central part to being free, learning, because we're in this world anyway where we're always negotiating this giving and receiving. I mean, it's just every single relationship is about that giving and receiving. And it will either generate a lot of ill will and fear and greed, right, suffering, or it could be a place of real freedom. All of those places in life we're in th- where we're in that circle of giving and receiving. So I'm really appreciative, Laura, that you shared with us today. And especially given that we're talking about ill will, and we'll have small groups near the end of the um, program tonight, so... You can be contemplating um, both in terms of what you've learned around sense desire, what we talked about last week, but also tonight and just throughout your practice, what you've been seeing and learning about ill will. I don't know if you saw this in uh, Gil Fransdahl's book. Anybody checked out Moon Palace? Do they still have copies? Yeah. Anybody go recently to get a copy of it? So anyway, I think they might still have they still had some copies. So if you still want to get a, it's not a long book. It's, I think, quite good, useful guide for the rest of your Buddhist Dharma practice to have uh, Gil's book on the hindrances. It's called Unhindered. But in that book, he talks about both sense desire and ill will as caffeine for the soul, right? For the neurotic sense of self, because there's a lot of juice on the surface at least, underneath, with more wisdom, we see how exhausting it is to be in the cycles of greed and aversion. But on the surface, it seems really intoxicating and exciting to hate, to want. And we tend to go there. When we're feeling a little depressed or dead, we think about something to hate or something to want. 
I mean, no, notice that tendency, how we use these stronger emotions of greed and hate, you know, not in the obvious forms, but there they are. We use them to sort of inflate the mind, the heart, when we're feeling burdened or weighed down or heavy in life. And then also just as a review, as we continue moving forward with the five hindrances, to just ask yourself the question, you know, when you have a better, clearer view of how greed works in your heart and mind or how aversion, ill will, impatience, boredom, fear, and all the different self-hate, shame, how these expressions of aversion work in your life, to ask this question when you see it and you really feel it in a raw, straightforward way, does this represent a personal failing? Because, you know, the habit would be to say in a resounding way, yes, (laughs) the fact that I'm needy in this way, the fact that I hate myself in this way, the fact that I'm, you know, irritated by this person that I love, that's a personal failing. It just seems so obvious that greed and aversion is a personal failing. So it's good to ask that in a public way in our own mind, you know, like an open way, like, is this a personal failing? Because then it really shows up this possibility of looking at aversion or any of the hindrances, as a natural phenomena that has its own roots, its own lawful expression coming out of the roots, right? In one of the um, collections of the Buddhist teachings, there's this really powerful image of um, a carving in a rock and a scratch in the dirt and the ground and writing on water. And it's, it's an image that talks about how acting on aversion, acting on ill will, right? Initially, you know, it's like writing on water. It's something when we're acting out our ill will, but it very quickly disappears. Almost as fast as you're puffing and puffing, it's gone. But the more we do it, because because it's such a powerful organizing principle for the ego, for the sense of self, it begins to have some longevity, the irritation, the aversion, right? That imprint, like if you scratch something out on the dirt. And then if we keep doing it, it just becomes the basic character of the mind, like carved into stone. And our go-to way of relating is with judgment, is, is with ill will, with fear, right? And boy, I'm starting to notice this. I'm sure some of you also who have had more than a few decades of living, that our character, our personality gets more and more ossified as we get older. And then, you know, before it was sort of like, oh yeah, I see that pattern and, you know, I could stop myself from doing it if I wanted to. And then it's like even that is an ossified thing, like acting out 
and then saying or imagining, you know, yeah, I could stop that if I wanted to. I mean, the whole thing is like a deep groove in the mind, deeper and deeper groove, eventually as if carved into stone. And then it's not so easy to be anything but. This is why acted out now in such a public way in, in terms of our politics, and of course it's not just the person everybody might be thinking of, it's just over and over again we see in some of these characters who have power, who are in a public, in the public eye, you know, we see their ossification, like there's so much who they are. They can't be anything but who they are, you know, whatever their particular dispositions might be. Like they're, you know, we say this sometimes, they're a caricature of themselves. You know, it's like they're not even real. It's like it's predictable how they're going to respond, how they're going to react, how they're going to do their life. You could bank on it. And so we want to be aware, like one of the reasons we studied the hindrances is because we want to honestly feel into what sort of future is being set in motion. We want to be appropriately concerned when we see the mind watering the habit of greed, watering the habit of ill will, dullness, restlessness, and doubt. Is this this what I'm interested in? Is this the kind of mind that will take care of me and those I love in the wider world? Is this the way I want to contribute? Being irritated, being afraid, being tight. So let me start with a very famous passage from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition. And this is right at the beginning. You probably, many of you have heard this before. This is Gil Fransdahl's translation. I don't know if people know, but besides besides being a, a wonderful Dharma teacher, Gil is also an academic. He's got a PhD in Buddhist studies from Stanford. And so he's translated a couple uh, made a couple books up on some of his translations, including the Dhammapada. So this is chapter one, the beginning of chapter one. All experiences, all experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. Many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. It's hard to stay angry when we realize both the conditional nature and the impermanent nature of people. 
right? It's hard to hate ourselves when we remember that we're just this fragile creature who's going to die. And we're a fragile creature that's been set in motion by innumerable causes and conditions. So even if we do something that's humiliating or wrong or not what we wanted, we can understand that. We can be forgiving. If we remember, if we take in the big picture and same, what's that? There's that famous line from, I think, uh, an American writer, if we knew the secret histories of our enemies, and then it's something like, we wouldn't hate them, but that's not quite right, but it's something like that, right? If we really understood why people are the way that they are, we wouldn't hate them. We wouldn't hate ourselves. This is a provocative. It's just sort of interesting about understanding like how we relate to the force of our personality. This is from Shantideva, this 8th century Buddhist monk, translated by Stephen Batchelor. Shantideva, he says, or writes, whenever there is attachment in my mind and whenever there is desire to be angry, I should not do anything or say anything but remain like a piece of wood Whenever I have distracted thoughts, the wish to verbally belittle others, feelings of self-importance or self-satisfaction, when I have the intention to describe the faults of others, pretension and the thought to deceive others, whenever I am eager for praise or have the desire to blame others, whenever I have the wish to speak harshly and, and cause dispute, at all such times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I desire material gain, honor, or fame, whenever I seek attendance or a circle of friends, and when my mind, and when in my mind I wish to be served, at all these times I should remain like a piece of wood. Whenever I have the wish to decrease or stop working for others, and the desire to pursue my welfare alone, whenever I have impatience, laziness, cowardice shamelessness, or the desire to talk nonsense. If thoughts of partiality arise at these times too, I should remain like a piece of wood. And we could spend a lifetime, that's like a koan, like what does that mean, like a piece of wood? You know, is he talking about something that's ordinary and natural? But there's something about like a piece of wood, it is ordinary, it's commonplace, and we don't think about wood as having a charge or an opinion, right? Doesn't like come across as something that would harbor resentment. You know, whatever you do to wood, we do all kinds of things to wood, right? It's really yields to our will. Now, there are a lot of these sort of similes or metaphors in the tradition, like the simile of the two-handed saw. Some of you have heard of. It's another one of those very provocative similes that the Buddha used, where he talks about even if bandits bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handed saw, 
one among you who let one's heart get angered even at that would not be doing my bidding, right? Would not be following my teachings. Even then you should train yourself. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how you should train yourself. Practitioners, if you attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the saw, do you see any aspect of speech, slight or gross, that you could not endure? No, venerable sir then attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the saw. That will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. This is what the Buddha said. Gratified, the monks, the practitioners, delighted in his words. Right? That's provocative. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, that if we could... uh, do something to prevent the bandits from sawing off our limbs, you know. It just means that resorting to ill will doesn't help. That's all the Buddha is saying there, that even in the most extreme situation you can imagine, because the, the point the Buddha is making here is it's so easy for us to rationalize being angry, having ill will. Because on the surface, it can look functional, like a way to organize our energy around what we hate, what we need to stop, what we need to get rid of. And so the Buddha is strongly, provocatively challenging whether ill will ever has a place. And this is, you know, in Buddhist circles, this is a constant question that comes up. You know, people will say, yeah, but shouldn't we be angry at? Well, remember, compassion can be a powerful force in terms of acting in the world, doing what's difficult to do, speaking truth to power. Do we actually need to hate to take care of the business of living? And this is like an open question for us as we live our life. Do we actually need to be afraid? Remember, fear is just uh, another expression of aversion, boredom, irritation, closing down, right? These are different expressions of ill will, aversion. When is it ever functional? And it's okay to think that it is functional, but Let's take this time to really look closely then during this week and tonight, of course, in your small groups. You might unpack some of those places in your life where you do end up believing in boredom, irritation, ill will, hatred, you know, judgment, critical mind. And you can sort of use your imagination like, well, what would... What, would, what could fierce compassion look like in this situation 
as opposed to hate or ill will? Would it, could it be just even more effective, more healing to act out of that motivation than the ill will? You know, if there's a particular person that you just see as, you know, the quintessential evildoer in your life, in the world, you know, how might we reframe some of these difficult people in our lives, in our world? Instead of framing them in terms of being bad, worthy of our hate and ill will, how might we relate to them? What's the risk of having compassion, having understanding? It's like, you know, even a rattlesnake or a tick, a deer tick with Lyme's disease, right? So there it is, you know, in front of you or on you. Maybe even having bit into you. Maybe having bit into you and engorged, right? So... What is the value? I mean, totally makes sense that we might be afraid. So it's not like we should be angry at ourselves for being angry at the tick. But uh, with some now, because it, we're just imagining this, what would be the function of the ill will or the fear? How does it help? Who does it help? Do we need the fear to figure out how to skillfully remove the tick? Do we need the fear and hate to decide what to do with the tick? To decide, you know, what the medical treatment we're going to do? Does the ill will or fear, hate, whatever, help us negotiate, do what needs to be done? It doesn't. I don't think it does. So these things that irritate us in our life, that evoke a kind of hatred and disgust, I mean, it's just so interesting, the kind of things we feel justified in being disgusted with, whatever it is, you know, messes, things that shouldn't be, you know, how certain we are, like for whatever reason, I think I mentioned this, I'm not sure if it was in the Buddhist studies, but one of the classes, but for some reason, uh, there were like 20 flies in our house. <laughs> and it's just so interesting to sustain, like to do, do my best to sustain a friendly attitude about the flies, because it feels so personal, like a personal attack that they're there in my house. Some of you know that story of the person rowing across the Ganges River late at night, rams into another boat. It just starts to curse, like, what an idiot. I had this lantern. Didn't you see me? Aren't you paying attention? He grabs his light and he shines it towards the boat. He realizes that the other boat is empty. So, And then the anger immediately disappears because anger needs an object. Right? We need either hate ourselves or we hate another. But it's like shooting an arrow. But the image the Buddha uses is that before we can throw something, we've got to grab it. 
right? So it's like if you imagine a red hot metal ball, before I can throw it, I gotta grab it. So we first and foremost get burnt. So it's like a poison. But it's sweet. It's a sweet poison. That's like the that's what the Buddha uses for anger. He calls it murderously sweet. Or um, another way that phrase gets translated, this is I think how Gilf translates it. Poison tip, what is it here? I have it somewhere. Anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip or murderously sweet, right? That's that caffeinated quality of ill will, right? If there's a lot of energy there, that's the sweetness we feel alive. And it supports, it reinforces the sense of self, which we, we may not recognize this, but more important than anything else, we, because of our misunderstanding or what in Buddhism we call wrong view, more than physical survival, social status, we need to feel real. Like, I'm here. And this is like so interesting to see how we use anger to feel real. Even if it's destructive, even if it destroys our social status, how many of us have created serious problems in our social circles because of some outburst of ill will or, you know, hate? A lot of us. Or lost a job. A lot of, some of you, several of you in this room teach in the prisons. And you know how, if you listen to enough of these stories, you see it's not like they're so different than we are. It's just that there was a moment, and usually it's ill will arose, or greed, but you know, one of the defilements, one of the torments of the mind, when, yeah, and the mind believed in it, identified with it, acted on it, and then they get caught, and they end up incarcerated. And, you know, how many moments might something have arisen for us? Some moment of denial or distraction, disconnection, a moment of greed, a moment of aversion that could have had terrible consequences. How many close calls have we had? Probably some of us have had some of those sort of life-changing events because of greed, because of aversion. I certainly came close a number of times in my life. And so we want to really respect how one moment of ill will, they say in the traditions in different places, that one moment of ill will, not seen by wisdom and awareness, can wipe out, you know, lifetimes worth of goodwill. Because it's just interesting how this is, you know, one of, and again, this is sort of on the level of Buddhist cosmology, meaning it's supposed to be a good 
skillful story, not something to believe in. But it's like one of the reasons there's such an emphasis on waking up is that as long as we're in these cycles of birth and death, moment by moment, lifetime by lifetime, whatever it might be, as long as we're in these cycles of birth and death, whether we're talking about that one moment at a time or lifetime to lifetime, we're susceptible to the forces of greed, anger, and delusion. Right? These defilements, these hindrances, these torments of mind. It isn't personal, but we're not in control of everything that's part of the dance. Right? For example, this could become a war zone. Minneapolis, or we could get drafted, or you know, who knows what could happen. And in that situation, we might do some really horrendous things that will haunt us for this life or maybe many, many, many lifetimes. Is there anybody in the room that thinks that they're somehow immune to doing really terrible things that other human beings have done, like in the Holocaust or in war zones or? Like if we were in a really terrible situation, do you think we'd be able to resist acting out, you know, real violence? Maybe, but maybe not. And we don't know when circumstances might change. So this is why in the tradition, because we're still in the realm where Ill will is possible and greed, acting on greed is possible. We want to have a very wholesome, energized respect for what's at play. And again, it's not so much that we believe in these multiple lifetimes, but we use it as a skillful story. Because otherwise we could like, okay, I'm 59 and a half, you know, I've avoided doing really, really stupid things for this many years, you know. I just need to avoid doing stupid things for another 20 or 30, maybe 40 years, and then I'll be done. And I'll, like, but, But that's just a story. That story is kind of evokes or reinforces a sense of just holding back. Or, But if we realize that I'm not out of the woods and I'm not going to get out of the woods until I learn not to be confused, not to be seduced by ill will, not to be confused and seduced by greed. We're not out of the woods until we've uprooted those tendencies, like in terms of the three unwholesome roots, until we have uprooted the habit energies around greed, the habit energies around ill will, and the habit energies around de- delusion or being disconnected from the way it is. As long as those tendencies remain in the mind, the Buddha would frighten us, wholesomely frighten us, like you can fall back into endless cycles of suffering. Like you don't, you know, a lot of times in New Age circles there's a sense, oh, if we just stick with it long enough, the awakening process is inevitable. Freedom is inevitable. But no, I mean, these cycles of suffering have an indiscernible, undiscernible beginning and end. We don't know. Because we can see how easy it is just in 
you know, in our own circles with the people we know and our own habit energies, we can see how easy it is to keep greasing the wheels of our habit energies that aren't very helpful. What makes us think that that leads to some end? It leads to more of the same is what it leads to. So when we see ourselves or other people acting out our irritation, the conclusion we should draw from that is that's leading to more of the same. It doesn't lead to some resolution. What leads to resolution is cultivating this clear, non-aversive presence with aversion, non-fear, non-hate. So we say, metta, loving kindness for these patterns of aversion. That's the start. Before we have metta, loving kindness for others, we start by having metta for our own habit energies. Oh yeah, it's like this now. I sent a nice article to everybody today. I'll get it up on our webpage too, but I didn't yet. Um, Sarah Dowering one of the great benefactors of IMS and also one of the Dharma teachers there. Um, she's actually grew up here. She's part of the Coles family, the owners of the Storm Tribune, and uh, moved out east and eventually got connected with IMS in the early years and was really a, a great benefactor and leader and teacher there. And I think she's still alive. Last I heard she was still alive, although she's quite old now. And so there's an article of hers about ill will. And then I also sent a link for um, Ajahn Brahm's short, I think two or three page article on all five of the hindrances you can take a look at. He's a Western monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition. So tonight we're in the small groups just sharing either about your understanding, your what you're seeing around sense desire, the attraction, and ways that the mind can have a different relationship to the world of sense experience. uh, That quality of equanimity, not afraid of pleasant sense experience, but not dependent on them. And then, of course, what what I've been talking about tonight around ill will. And maybe 75. So why don't we try 24? Do you want to start, Portia? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.